Well, when you open up the floor to Bible questions in real time, it reminds me of the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winning physicist who was on a lecture tour with a chauffeur. The chauffeur and the scientist traveled to many speaking venues, and near the end of the tour, the uh, scientist turned to his chauffeur and said, you know, I'm exhausted. If I wasn't booked to do this lecture tonight, I'd just as soon relax, maybe have an early evening, go to sleep. I'm just tired. And the chauffeur said, well, sir, I've heard this lecture you've given 45 times, and I have it memorized. And if you'd like, I'll give the lecture. So they switched clothes, and the scientist put on the chauffeur's uniform, and the chauffeur put on the scientist's clothes, and the chauffeur did a beautiful job. I mean, he gave the highly technical physics lecture from the Nobel Peace Prize scientist perfectly, absolutely perfectly. But then he made a mistake at the end before he thought, he said, are there any questions? <laughs> Somebody asked a question, like a, a really hard question. And the chauffeur said, well, that's such a rudimentary and easy question, I'm going to call my chauffeur to answer. <laughs> so if I call for the chauffeur the back tonight to answer, you'll know what's going on. Uh, seriously, one of the ways that uh, we can have the most effective preaching as uh, expositor of God's Word, the Bible, is to exegete, to take out of the text what is there with care and uh, consistent interpretation and prayerful application. But the second way to be an effective expositor of God's Word is to exegete the pews, uh, to learn from God's people in a particular assembly what they're thinking about, what they're wondering about, what they're challenged by. And tonight I take that as a chance to just do that, to hear what's on your hearts and to try to bring God's Bible to answer your questions. I may not have answers to all your questions. I'll just be honest and uh, say that if I don't. And I'll say, I promise you, I'll look up an answer and get back on it. And uh, let's just have that arrangement. But before we go to your questions, I'd ask you when you do ask if you'd stand and give a chance to turn our camera on you. We're going to be videotaping tonight's session and we'd like to see the questioner. Uh, so if you could just kindly stand and speak out in a nice loud voice, and then I will seek to answer the questions. So who would have the first question tonight? You have been addressing justification this morning. Yes. It would, I believe, I, if I'm not mistaken, that you said justification is a process or an event. And if it is, either one of them, could you explain? Or should I say that if, what does just, and it is twofold, what does justification has to do with our sanctification if it is? That's a great question and I appreciate it. Um, justification is God's work and of course sanctification is God's work yes. and glorification is God's work. All of these wonderful um, sweeping doctrinal truths are God's word. We have really uh, no part in any of it. Um, but justification is a point in time when a believer acknowledges, or an unbeliever, excuse me, acknowledges sin, uh, has a godly sorrow for the sin, and turns to Jesus Christ, transfers trust alone to Jesus' person and work, and is born again, given life where there once was spiritual deadness. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, 
And so justification is a point in time, but it's also an ongoing blessing in that when the, when the accuser, Satan, he's, Satan's a liar, a murderer, and an accuser, and so when Satan accuses me after conversion of my sins, which are frequent, then Jesus defends me at the Father's right hand and says to the Father, for those sins I've died, I've quitted him, I've declared him innocent, I've robed him in my righteousness. He's accepted in me, accepted in the beloved. So justification is a point in time at conversion when we are given Christ's righteousness as an imputation, as a credit to our account, and it's also ratified, confirmed <clears throat> over time as Satan accuses us and wants to, uh, as he did with Job, wants to uh, bring us and our lives on earth before God with their uh, faults. And Jesus defends us and restates the truth that we have been justified by grace through faith in him. That's a great question. Uh, sanctification is God's work of setting the born-again believer apart for God's own possession and use. There's a sense in which sanctification is positionally instantaneous. Mm -hmm. uh, when we trust Jesus to be Lord and Savior, we are instantaneously uh, set apart for God's possession and use. And that seal is the Holy Spirit of God who comes to permanently indwell us as believers, which is totally unique and superior to the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, because the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit was not a permanent indwelling ministry. Uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament visited believers, allowing them to do exploits in God's will that were very unique. So the little shepherd boy, when he showed up on the battlefield with the Philistine Goliath, the Holy Spirit of God visited the shepherd boy and gave him power and accuracy when he threw that stone, which left a real impression on Goliath. Uh, that's a joke. Um, so going back, sanctification is positional and instantaneous. We're set apart for God's possession and use as evidenced by the indwelling Holy Spirit who seals us until the day of redemption. Uh, you might picture that as if you go to the post office here in Nassau and want to send a, a registered letter. You pay the extra postage to have it registered to the recipient that you're sending it to. And that registration of that piece of mail is such that the person, the addressee is the only one who can open that envelope and he or she has to show photo ID on the other end to prove that they are in fact the addressee, and then they get the letter and they open it. Um, we, in a sense, are, are certified registered mail from Jesus to the Father in heaven when we're saved. And uh, we're registered insofar as only God the Father, the addressee of the envelope that holds you as a believer, only God the Father is, is authoritative to open that envelope and to let us into heaven because of Christ. So sanctification, God's work of setting the believer apart for his own possession and use, positional, it's immediate, um, but it's also progressive. Sanctification is progressive, that until we see Jesus face to face and we're made to be like him in glory, First uh, John 3, verse 2, we shall be made to be like him when we see him. Until that actually happens, we have ups and downs in our actual experience of being set apart for God's possession and use. I could be uh, totally set apart for God's possession and use right now as I'm trying to answer questions, and I trust by God's grace I am. But then 
step into the foyer and if I, uh, you ask me to do something uh, as your pastor and I uh, decide I'm not going to do it, I don't feel like doing it, I put you off, then I need to confess that to you and to God when I come to my senses. But that, that to say that progressive sanctification is like um, a wave on a monitor in ICU, person who's hooked up to wires in ICU, and you know the heart goes like this, it's like a sine wave. And um, the reality is when we first get saved, uh, positionally, the amplitude of that wave between obedience and disobedience is high off the midline. But as we grow in grace, knowledge of our Lord and Savior with time, the amplitude of the variance from the center line of God's will as found in his word hopefully gets less. And as time goes by, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller as we advance in our faith and knowledge of the word and obedience to the word and walking in the Spirit to the point that the amplitude of our experience off of the standard line of uh, holiness found in God's Word, that when ultimately we were promoted uh, to heaven, as Gloria Hamilton was on Thursday, that when she became absent from the body, she became present with the Lord, and there's no variance in her experience walking with God anymore. She's perfectly, uh, eternally obedient and bringing honor and glory to the Savior in heaven. So I hope that answers your question. God is at the root of both works of justification and of sanctification. And uh, we're so blessed to be the recipients of such grace in our lives. I thank you for your question. Someone else? Kevin. Thank you. Um, my question is, why do Christians... Um, not share their, I mean, what is your reason for Christians not sharing their faith and, and, and telling others about Christ? Because um, you have a lot of Christians, right? And some people don't even know they're Christians, you know, because they don't share their faith. Even in their workplace, people don't know they're even Christians. You know what I mean? And only probably when something happens, then you might hear, you hear that person was a Christian. You know, then mm-hmm. someone say, what? He's a Christian? She's a Christian? You know, what is, what is, what's the reason why people don't share their faith? I appreciate the question. Um, I think there are several reasons. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, um, one thing we have to face up to is that um, until a person is granted by grace uh, faith to see the realities that are true about themselves and about Jesus, that they're blinded. And in 2 Corinthians 4, we see this clearly presented. Um, Verse four one. Therefore, since we have this ministry, which in context is a ministry of reconciliation and presenting the gospel to Gentiles, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. One of the reasons that people don't share Christ is they've lost heart. They've lost heart about the potential for them, the lost person they care about, being saved. Oh, he's too tough. She's too uh, hurt. Um, he's too self-reliant, too intellectual. And so sometimes we don't even get around to sharing our faith because we've lost heart. And maybe we lose heart because we don't think we're an expert in the Bible. Uh, But if we know enough to be saved, we know enough to be a witness for Christ, right? And so so there's many reasons that we as Christians can lose heart. Uh, Therefore, since we have this ministry As we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden 
because of shame. There's another reason why some people don't share their faith is they have secret sin in their lives. And if we have secret sin in our lives, cuts off our prayer life, cuts off our Bible study. Someone has said the Bible keeps the believer from sin, and sin will keep the believer from the Bible. So some believers have not renounced the hidden sins of their lives, the shameful things, and they walk in craftiness and adulterating the word of God. So one of the reasons Christians don't share their faces is they've lost heart. Lost heart about somebody actually being, possibly being saved. Lost heart about their own knowledge of the gospel and of, of God's word. Um, another reason that Christians don't share their faith is they've got skeletons in their closet. I don't mean sins prior to conversion that Jesus forgave. I mean after conversion sins that they cover over and hide and lie about. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God, that's a little g, Satan, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And if we lose sight of that, and we try to share our faith in our own strength or smarts without prayer, we're going to hit our head against the wall. And some Christians have tried to share their faith in their own smarts and strength, and they've hit their heads against the wall, and praise God they have. If we could do something without Jesus who said, apart from me you can do nothing, we'd be in serious danger. But some Christians are trying to share their faith in their own smarts and strength without prayer, hitting their heads against the wall, either denying or not knowing that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, goes on to say, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Another reason that Christians don't share their faith is they're not living under the lordship of Christ, they're living under the lordship of themselves. But Paul said, But we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. When you live under the lordship of Christ, prayerfully ask for opportunities to share your faith, see those opportunities, and then prayerfully enter into them, uh, you'll be a consistent witness for Christ. Um, skipping down to verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Uh, some Christians stop or never get started in sharing their faith because they... Um, believe that they are bigger than their britches and that they um, are somehow superior to people that they know who lack salvation. And, but really, we're earthen vessels. We're, we're crackpots. <laughs> we're clay pots that are cracked so the light of the Holy Spirit of God within us can shine forth. Uh, some people um, uh, fail to share their faith because of fear, uh, fear of rejection, fear of... Um, loss of status. If, if you're at your workplace, maybe you have fear about sharing your faith because um, you feel you'll have repercussions at your work if you share Christ on the job. Uh, some people are afraid to share their faith because they don't know the rest of their extended family if they'll be invited to Christmas this December if they share their faith. They'll be ostracized. 
Um, some people won't share their faith because they are um, selfish. Um, they're happy to be saved. They're happy to know that their sins are forgiven. But they're just as happy to wholly huddle in a church and never get out on the playing field. To let the quarterback, the human quarterback, call the plays every Sunday from God's playbook, the Bible, and then never run the plays. You know, break the huddle and forget everything that was in the playbook because they have an attitude, you, me, us three, that adds to two, doesn't it? And not really concerned if anybody comes into this fellowship who's lost. A good question to ask is when you see someone come into the fellowship on a Sunday morning or at Juana and they're rough around the edges, maybe they're not as clean as as, uh, uh, others and maybe they're foul-mouthed and maybe they uh, don't know the protocols and the um, things, way things are done in our church. You know, do you go, oh, who's that? You go over and just say, hi, I'm glad you're here. Really glad you're here. Um, we want to start many churches, God willing, in October, uh, trusting the Lord for at least 10 many churches. And I'm going to teach the many church co-leaders that I want them to reemphasize time and time again that there are empty chairs in each meeting of their mini flock. If not literally, mentally, there are empty chairs so that we will invite people to our mini flocks, mini churches who do not know Christ or who know him and they need fellowship. So there are probably many other reasons why people don't share their faith. Some people don't share their faith because they don't know how. Um, and that's that falls on uh, me and falls on our church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. Uh, we ought to equip you to what the gospel is, to how you can share it in 20 seconds, 2 minutes, or 20 minutes. That's what we tried to do in the first series of preaching I had as your pastor, to clarify what the gospel is. Christ died for sins and arose, and to give you the bad news, good news approach to sharing the gospel again in two minutes uh, or 20 minutes. Good question. Thank you. One other thing. <laughs> One other thing. I have clean teeth tonight in a dirty SUV because I have time to clean my teeth. I make a time, set a time to clean my teeth. And I don't set a time to wash the SUV. It gets washed, but not as frequently as my teeth. And if we approach evangelism, that there's a, there's a time I'm going to look for someone to share Christ with. Today, get out of the bed and say, Lord, today I'm trusting you for at least one opportunity to share the gospel before I go to bed tonight. Kind of like brushing your teeth, you're apt to do it if you trust God for it. Good. Someone else? I've heard a few explanations for what happened to the women. Um, We hear how Adam and Eve had sons, but no daughters are mentioned, and yet the sons marry and have children. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, Good question. The scriptures uh, highlight the two sons, of course, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, because their characters and their interaction with each other was is very instructive and foundational to God's redemptive plan, which runs from Genesis through Revelation. So they were focused in upon, not because males are more important than females, but because in how they saw each other, 
and eventually how Cain in jealousy killed Abel to uh, be the first murder uh, of, in, within mankind, it advanced the story of redemption because God's heart in giving us his word from Genesis to Revelation is to tell us that he's a saving God, that we are in need of a savior, and that we can be restored to fellowship with God through the finished work of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So yes, Adam and Eve had many other children the scriptures don't mention, not because they're unimportant, but because Cain and Abel were the most important to see, to advance the story of God's redemptive heart. Yes, they had daughters, obviously, and they obviously married um, brothers because there was no one else to marry originally. And God, uh, you know, blessed the union of those marriages and gave children. And of course, the geometric uh, growth of the human race happened that way. Um, some people criticize the literal nature of the creation account in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 by saying, who did they have to marry? Well, they had sisters to marry that the Bible doesn't specify how many. And again, not because they were unimportant or less important than Cain and Abel, but because uh, Cain and Abel and their mindsets, their actions, their obedience, in the other case, disobedience, uh, then the aggression and, and hatred of, of uh, Cain to kill his brother was very crucial for us as readers to understand as to what happened from the, the Garden of Eden's idyllic perfection to what we face now as a planet full of rebels who are needing salvation. So I don't know if that fully answers your thought. Uh, is there anything more that ties in that I'm missing? Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, someone else? From the passage that you spoke from this morning, Romans 5.1, verse 1 says, says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Elsewhere we read about the peace of God. Are there differences? Yes, good question. The peace, peace with God is, um, you might look at it this way, that it is, um, like a covenantal peace that where there was estrangement, where there was alienation due to our sin, when we have the peace with God, it means that God in new covenant grace came to us, like I mentioned this morning, going to from uh, High Vista to Coral Harbor. What I didn't make clear maybe in that illustration is that the real picture of reconciliation is not just me going to Coral Harbor all the way, but it's me bringing you back to Eastern Road High Vista. God in Christ came all the way to us when we were dead in trespass and sin. And then as we trusted Jesus to be our Savior, He is bringing us back to full and unfettered, uncompromised, undiluted, undistracted fellowship with Him in a place called heaven. And in the middle of that trip back to full fellowship with God in heaven, we have that experiential sanctification. So the peace with God is a covenantal kind of peace that God in new covenant, uh, Jesus said, uh, this blood is the new covenant uh, in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So peace with God is a, a release, a cure for estrangement that we brought by our sin and a holy God. And then the peace of God is that peace with God appropriated moment to moment in our lives. If you think about it, if, if you do not know peace with God, you ultimately can never know the peace of God. 
Peace with God is the foundation upon which the peace of God is built. So I can't go to the funeral home of a person that, as far as humanly speaking, is known to have rejected Christ. I can't go to the funeral home um, without first talking about peace with God for the family that survived the person who never trusted Christ. Then once I tell them about peace with God and they trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, then I can help them understand the peace of God. So peace with God is first. Peace of God is a happy outflow of peace with God. It's a very good question. Going back to the context and um, what you preached this morning, okay? Um, In verse 5, um, is this a part of our progressive sanctification? Verse 5, and it says that, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Is that a part of our, um, not positionally, but stately sanctification? Is it that part of uh, the process of sanctification for the believer? Uh, Yes, it is. It is a part of that experiential process of being set apart for God's possession and use. Because surely, uh, when we see uh, God produce perseverance in us, that's sanctification. When we see God produce proven character in us, that is subsequent to conversion, that's also sanctification. When we see God produce hope in us, uh, that also is a part of progressive sanctification. Uh, Hope in Scripture is two things that are always uh, Siamese twins. Hope in the Scriptures is always desire plus expectancy. If you have desire and you expect it, then you have biblical hope. If you only have desire and you do not have expectation, you do not have hope. If you have expectation but no desire, you do not have hope. So to answer your question, yes, those uh, character qualities are part of sanctification, which only can be launched by justification. Someone else? My, my question comes out of your, uh, this morning on Echoes of Calvary, you, you, you uh, answered a question regarding the, the two coming returns of Christ. And um, during the Millennium Kingdom portion, you mentioned that there will be, I guess, persons who will ultimately fall again and um, end up, uh, you know, getting killed, I guess, when Satan is also uh, put into the final lake of fire. So I just was trying to figure out those persons who fall during the millennium, are those any of the believers who would have been raptured or are they persons who would have, um, I guess, would have still been left after the tribulation? Um, uh, And I mean, it would be interesting too if you could... uh, respond or answer that question again this morning for folks who may not have heard it this morning because it was kind of interesting. Sure, appreciate it. Um, Yes, the um, there will be opportunity to be saved in the tribulation. Um, I have a family member who's not yet saved. We've shared the gospel with him many times and so far he's not a believer. He knows the gospel, he just doesn't believe it. 
And um, if the rapture were to occur tonight and he was in that state, he would go through the seven years of tribulation after we in the church have been airlifted in the twinkling of an eye. And perhaps, to use him as an example, perhaps he would um, trust Christ and see that the gospel that we share with him during the church age was actually true. But the vast majority of believers in the tribulation who turn to Christ for salvation in that intense time of judgment will die a martyr's death. Um, They won't take the mark of the beast. Uh, Therefore, they will not be able to transact, uh, be hired, uh, they'll be hunted down by Antichrist and martyred. But near the end of the seven years of tribulation, I think it's fair to deduce that there will be people who come to saving faith in Christ, as there will be previous to that part of the tribulation, that survive the tribulation as born-again Christians. And they will enter the thousand-year kingdom of Christ called the millennium with bodies able to procreate, uh, bodies able to have babies, whereas we who are raptured before the seven years of tribulation, when we return with Christ at the second coming event, we will enter the millennial kingdom with bodies incapable of reproduction. So it would seem that during the uh, seven year, or thousand years of millennial reign of Jesus, those who enter as believers from the tribulation with bodies able to reproduce will do so, And because this curse of sin will be lifted off of all of creation and lions will lie down with lambs and uh, people will be vegetarians or animals, excuse me, be vegetarians and not carnivores, as is the case in the fall, and many other beautiful ramifications, the elongation of human life. All these things, I I take it that uh, infertility in uh, married couples will be a thing of the past in the millennium, but all that to say that uh, babies will be born in the millennium with uh, the ability to accept or reject Christ, even as people now in the church age have the ability to accept or reject Christ. And um, if you go to Revelation 20, um, verse 7, and when the thousand years are completed, so this is the end of the millennium, Satan will be released from prison. That's because he's bound in a confinement all during those thousand years. And will come out of, come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The, what's the war, not a war. It's the final war, the final battle. The war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Think about that. For a thousand years, King Jesus is ruling and reigning planet earth. You turn on CNN and you see Jesus in Jerusalem teaching, repressing evil with an iron scepter, according to Isaiah 11, 1-5, judging some who are evil in his kingdom with death early. For a thousand years you see Christ, King of kings, Christ, ruling the earth with perfection, perfect government, idyllic conditions, Satan out of the picture in a prison, And these babies that are born to people who enter the kingdom uh, with bodies able to procreate, these kids are born, these kids grow up. thousand years this is happening. They have kids. 
their kids have kids, those kids have kids, those kids have kids, and on it goes. Such that when the thousand years are over, Jesus releases Satan from the prison, and basically Satan says, hey, who wants to overturn Jesus? The number of people who want to overthrow Jesus are so great, it is innumerable. The figure of speech is they're like the sand of the seashore. You know what? That tells us a few things. That tells us that the rebelliousness of our lives before Christ and the rebelliousness of people's lives around us who are pre-Christian, lost, is a heart issue, not an environmental issue. People hate Jesus, who hate Jesus, not because they were not treated fairly in their families of origin or because they were hurt on an exam in grade six. People who will not trust Jesus after he reigns and rules them for a thousand years visibly, literally, bodily, have the problem because the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. That's one thing this teaches us. The second thing this teaches us is that Jesus always finishes what he starts. His second coming started the thousand-year kingdom, and he is going to end his thousand-year kingdom decisively. Verse 9, this innumerable army siding with Satan to take out King Christ. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. Jesus wins. No one can say in eternity from hell, well, the only reason uh, Jesus one was because he never had a final opposition. I mean, sure, he could do whatever he wanted when Satan was in a prison, but you let Satan out of that prison, Jesus could lose. No, 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 no. Jesus lets him out of the prison to prove that he can't lose. Your Savior can't lose. So, yes, there will be people in the thousand-year kingdom who reject Jesus Christ because they will have been born of people who survive the tribulation and down that chain of descendants, they will have a free will. They will be able to trust Jesus or reject him, and a large number will reject him, which is really something. So much for the objection to trusting Jesus as Savior that I hear and you may hear. Um, if I could only see Jesus, I'd believe in him. Well, for a thousand years, people will see Jesus. <laughs> and more then you can count by the end of the thousand years will not take him as Savior. They'll reject him. They'll hate him. They want him out of the picture. But they will die by fire sent from heaven. Jesus wins. Someone else. How do you reconcile free will and God's sovereignty? God's, uh, like, do we really, really have free will or is God's sovereignty just, like, how does that play against one another? That is a weighty question, my brother. And uh, it may take eternity to be answered. 
But let me take a little spin at it. First of all, God is sovereign, but human beings are responsible. I don't know how that works entirely. God is sovereign, but human beings are responsible. The Bible teaches both. And so we have to, in some ways, let the two lie together as the scriptures do without full explanation. I think it was Spurgeon who said, you could look at it this way, that there's an archway that leads into heaven. And on the outside of the arch, before you enter heaven, you read, whosoever will may come. Human responsibility. But when you walk through that arch and get into heaven and you turn back, on the same arch, on the inside of heaven, it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. These two truths are taught by scripture. You might call it an antinomy. An antinomy, prefix A means non or not. Namas means teaching. So an antinomy is two teachings that appear to contradict in our thinking, but do not contradict in the mind of holy God that's an infinite mind. And when you look at um, Romans 9, is a good place to go. Uh, Paul, Jewish, converted on the road to Damascus, uh, commissioned to be God's apostle to the Gentiles, still had a heart desire for his countrymen, the Jews, to come to faith in Christ. And I'm reading at Romans 9.1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Paul's saying, I could wish that I wasn't saved so my Jewish relatives could be saved. That's strong. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers from whom Christ is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God be blessed forever. Verse 6, but as though the word of God has failed, it is not as though the word of God has failed, excuse me, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. So now he's making the point of God's sovereignty, that God didn't pick Ishmael. God picked Isaac. God's choice. He's sovereign. Verse 8, that is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise as regarded by the descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son and so forth. It goes on. God in this chapter also is said to have chosen. Verse 25. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. 
And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them that you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. We could go on and you could actually look at chapters 10 and 11 that lay out right beside each other divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I don't fully understand how it works, but it works. One way to look at whosoever could be the elect. Whosoever understood to be the elect. So in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You could look at the whosoever shall believe in him as the elect. And the non-elect won't believe in him. Does that kill evangelism? No. It accelerates evangelism. Because I do not know who the elect are. There is no way of knowing who the elect are until their lives are over and they've either trusted Christ as Savior with irresistible grace, the eye of tulip for Calvinism, or they have rejected Christ, evidencing that they were non-elect. I don't know who the elect are. None of us do. So I share Christ with everybody. Everybody. Someone has said that God does all the electing, but I can nominate as many people as I want. And I do. I never give one nanosecond's thought to whether the person I'm going to share the gospel with is elect. Never. Election really spurs on evangelism. I've used this illustration, I think, with you before, but um, my parents developed a summer property in Ontario, and they bulldozed a 20-foot-deep swimming hole that we stocked with fish. It was an acre in size. It was a pretty good size. And uh, we stocked it with bass. And the man from the Ministry of Natural Resources who helped us release the bass, the little baby bass, into our pond said, you know, if you don't fish these bass for two years, you will not be able to fish this uh, pond dry of fish because they'll reproduce so much. So we didn't fish, at least take any fish out of that pond for two years. And do you know what? Every time I went to that pond, I caught bass. <laughs> I knew they were in there. Every time, sometime on every cast, elections like that. God, in his work of election from eternity past, has surrounded you with people who are elect, and you don't know it, they don't know it. So when you cast the gospel and fish for men, they will bite. Maybe not with your witness of the gospel, but by somebody's witness of the gospel. And by the way, evangelism is not just, if this is a time, uh, an integer line, and this is negative 10, and this is positive 10, this is the atheist, negative 10, this is the um, glorified, walking with Christ, spiritually mature, converted Christian, and zero is the midpoint of this line. That's stepping over from unbelief in Jesus to belief in Jesus for salvation. Evangelism is not just helping a person from negative one to positive one. If you are used of God to move a person from negative seven to negative three, that's evangelism. Just as much as negative one to positive one. So when you share your faith, and I trust you are, you know there are elect people all around you. You have no idea who they are, so share Christ with everybody. 
You may not see them go from negative 1 to positive 1, but you may see them go from negative 7 to negative 5. I don't know if that helps. Human responsibility and election are not enemies. They, they're laid out in Scripture beside each other. And um, I've produced, a, oh, I don't know, it's about a 10-page handout for one of the Sunday school classes. And if you would like to see some more study that I've done on an election and on uh, human responsibility, just phone the church office this week and we'll get you a copy of this 10-page handout. Um, it's a very important question. Some uh, churches split over it. I trust this church will never split over it. Um, but I will say that the reason there is a Calvary Bible Church is because believers back then pulled away from evangelistic temple because there was a more Arminian approach at ET that stressed free will over sovereignty. And founders of this church understood that sovereignty, election, were key doctrines worth fighting for. I love Pastor Cash, and I love the believers at that church, but we're different in this point. We can agree to disagree in love, but we're different. Someone else. Night, Hi, Wesley. Rob. Hi. Right. Two questions. Uh, the Christians that come through the tribulation in the millennium, uh, what will happen to their body? Uh, will they be changed? We know that they're going to live for a very long time during the millennium. So what will happen to the body? The eternal body. And the second question is, should Christians keep the Sabbath? Should Christians keep, keep the, Sabbath? the Sabbath? Okay, first question. Um, those, those that trust Jesus as Savior right near the end of the seven years of tribulation, will survive the tribulation and enter the millennium like we talked about, able to reproduce as married couples. Um, there will be very little death in the millennium. Very little. Human lifespan will be expanded to similar to what it was in Genesis before the fall. So there will be very few funerals in the millennium. Uh, there will be some. Uh, most of the funerals will be at the judgment of Christ against sin, suppressing sin. Um, when all is said and done, uh, we all will enter the eternal state with a glorified body. Whether we trusted Jesus in the church age, whether we trusted Jesus in the tribulation, or whether we trusted Jesus in the millennium, we'll all wind up with glorified bodies. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is not Sunday. Uh, the Sabbath is Saturday. Uh, the Sabbath is not technically for the church. Uh, the Lord's Day is for the church. As early as the book of Acts, the believers in Antioch started to meet on the first day of the week, and all the other believers in the local churches in Acts did the same. The first day of the week substituted for the last day of the week for gathering for instruction in the Word and worship because Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead on the first day of the week. And so every Sunday when we come together on the Lord's Day, we come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that we come to worship a risen Savior. Death could not hold him. He victorious over sin and self and Satan. Not his self, our self. Um, when you look at the Old Testament Ten Commandments, all nine are repeated in the New Testament except Sabbath keeping. Does that mean 
that we ought not to have a pause day. Yes, it's healthy to have a pause day. And if you want it to be Sunday, that's okay. That's a good idea. Um, in my line of work, Sunday is not a pause day. I'm not complaining. I have another pause day. Part of having a pause day is to rest. And we need rest. Uh, God didn't need rest after his six literal 24-hour creative days, but he rested to show us to rest. And so my pause day is Friday. I don't come into the study here at church on Fridays. I have a date day with Beth every Friday. That's my pause day. So technically, uh, we aren't to keep the Sabbath because we're not Jewish and because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week and the New Testament model is Lord's Day assembling together as believers. Do we need a pause day? Yes. Can it be Sunday? Yes. Does it have to be Sunday? No. Um, all of the nine, all of the ten commandments are re reiterated in the New Testament except Sabbath keeping. It's not in the New Testament. That rocks your world, I'm sorry, but you asked the question. <laughs> That's a good question. Someone else? And um, there are interesting views on the, on the point. It has also come up in our, in our family with regard to certain texts and scriptures speaking to a, a Christian justification of lying. For instance, um, I have heard uh, a justification of lying during wartime, for instance. Um, if the Germans were to come into your home and say, do you have any Jews you're hiding? Um, persons would say no, and the, there were reasons given for that being acceptable. Uh, I've heard Christians smuggling Bibles into other countries, and if questioned, they would answer in a, in a way that would deter people from, for instance, searching. There are also passages of scripture that have come up to question the Hebrew midwives um, and the blessings they received for their treatment of the Egyptian children. Um, uh, Prophet Samuel, with regard to his going in to anoint David, and he said, uh, what if Saul finds out? Carry a heifer and say you're going to sacrifice. And um, also we had Rahab the harlot in her situation. The question that, that came up was, is lying justified depending on the circumstance? And I wanted to hear your opinion on that with regard to those situations, literally with regard to, for instance, the German situation, and also maybe if it's possible to hit those texts in scripture and give an, an, an understanding of what was going on on there. Thank you for a good question. Uh, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so to resemble Jesus, we tell the truth. Uh, the, instance, the instances in Scripture, the Old Testament, uh, and uh, those instances, Rahab, let's pick Rahab. Um, Rahab uh, hid the spies and thereby demonstrated her faith in their God. They promised her for hiding them that 
they would spare her and her family when Jericho was taken. And there would be a red cord hung out of her upper story window to show the troops where they were. It seems that God permits and times permits lying. He never condones it openly or explicitly in his word. Um, he is truth, and he expects us to tell the truth. These instances in the scriptures where truth was not told and there was not repercussion, I have to leave with God as to why. I'm called to truth. Um, I don't have Nazis coming to my home. Um, I don't have an invading Israelite army coming to the Bahamas to cut down non-believers. Um, this is a very real issue. This is not 1940s, the last this happened. Uh, Beth and I were at a marriage retreat before we came down here to be your pastor. And uh, it was with Stuart and Jill Briscoe. And uh, Jill Briscoe was talking of her time in Vietnam when she was called by the women of a certain church to come and teach them how to study the Bible. And many of them came, walked miles, left their husbands, left their children for a couple of days in hiding to learn how to study the Bible. And they were in a room, and uh, Vietnamese soldiers, police, barged up the stairs, and they could hear them coming. They knew exactly who they were. And so the leader, the woman leader of this Bible study said, now, and all the women had a job. And the leader of the Bible study turned to Jill, who had no idea what was going on, and said, play along. And what they did was they pulled out a card table, they pulled out chairs, they pulled out a birthday cake that a woman had brought to that particular meeting, they shoved candles on it, and they pretended they were having a birthday party. They threw all their Bibles into a closet. And every time that Vietnamese circle of women meet in secret, they have a different, unique plan as to what to do when the police barge in. Planned out in advance. So are they lying when the police say, what are you doing? Having a birthday party. Does God sanction that? Does God judge that? I'll leave that with God. But I know that if they didn't do that, they'd have no more Bible study. Maybe not have their lives. Great question. Um, Walt Kaiser, who is one of my favorite Bible teachers, he was the former president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. A converted Jewish person. When he talked about Rahab and the fact that she lied about where the spies were, she'd never seen the spies, he said, he's got, he's got a Jewish accent, he says, will you know, reader, there's no button in the margin to say, record your response here. God doesn't really care what we think about that. We'll leave it with him. Right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? His ways are so far above our ways, past finding out, right? I'll leave it with him. That's the best I can do. But I train our children to tell the truth, even when it costs them. To be honest, 
to reflect Jesus, who is the truth. So I don't train our children that there's some cases where you can lie. Because if you teach your children there are some cases where you can lie, it's the thin edge of the wedge. And what you may approve in moderation, they will approve in excess. What the parent approves in moderation, the child approves in excess. That's why I don't drink also. I don't drink alcohol. Because what I might approve in moderation, my children would approve in excess. Great evening. Thank you for your good questions. We'll have to do this again. It's wonderful to know what you're thinking about. And these are very good questions. And uh, I hope that we'll all become students of God's word, realizing that there are answers to our questions in his holy word. Let's stand together, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for bringing us together in Jesus' name. We thank you that we can understand more of your character and your will as because we can be in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would become students who study to show ourselves approved, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless us now as we go on our way. Encourage us this week to live truthfully and to share our faith. And we'll be careful to trust you and to lean on you for the whole process. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.